We are taking a brief hiatus from Ephesians, and we're going to look this morning at Psalm 46. I've chosen for us to look at this passage briefly for several reasons. One, it's the psalm that Luther reflected on to write, A Mighty Fortress is Our God, which we will sing as our hymn of response to this later on. But also because um, much of what we've been looking at in Ephesians, the idea of the great heavenly city, the great people of God as they're being gathered together and redeemed out, as I was studying this psalm, it just once again struck me how powerful that imagery is in Ephesians because it looks back to the promises that are found in the Old Testament. It reminded me again that one of the things that Christians need to be able to do is to look back into the Old Testament, not through Old Testament eyes, but through New Testament eyes. We need to be able to see and reflect upon the realities that are going on here And while oftentimes spiritual realities are being discussed in very physical terms like nations and earthquakes, as we see in this passage, Luther, as he wrote and reflected on this hymn, thought of devils filling the earth. And I think that's right because we ultimately see in Revelation that what lies behind oftentimes these things is the reality. What's really being pointed to is the reality of a world that is an animosity towards God and God's subduing of it. And so we want to read with confidence and surety this passage and hope that when we are through, we will have a better understanding and rejoice in the fact that we have this great psalm. To the choir master of the sons of Korah, according to Alamoth, a song, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved." God will help her when morning dawns. The nations rage, the kingdoms totter. He utters His voice, the earth melts. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Come, behold the works of the Lord, how He has brought desolations on the earth. He makes wars cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the chariots with fire. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. Let us pray. Lord, this is a great word. And it is a word that apart from your spirit working within us, we cannot and will not believe. So Lord, we ask that in Your might and in Your power, You would illumine our hearts, not just to a place of understanding what this text says, but to a place of desiring to see the truth of it expressed in action in our lives. 
Lord, we thank You and praise You that You have given us Your sacred Word. And that here in these pages, life is held out to us. Lord, would You make us people who embrace life as is found in the person and work of Jesus Christ and in knowing our Heavenly Father. We pray that You would make it so in our midst this day. In Jesus' name. Amen. A couple of things I'd like to talk to us about as we look, begin to look at this psalm. The first thing is, is that this psalm is ultimately a psalm of confidence. It's not a psalm of lament. It's not a psalm of intrepidation. It is a psalm that as the psalmist reflected on it, the purpose of it was to make God's people confident. But there's something to be told about that because why the need to tell us to be confident? I think there's something that we always need to come back to and remember in our lives is that we often, if we're honest with ourselves, have times where we're not all that confident. That we find ourselves as Joshua with Moses being dead and a big raging river in front of us and we haven't got a clue how we will do what God has called us to do. Even though God has told us already that He will be with us, and has already set about to accomplish all that is necessary. Now, if you're the kind of person that never experiences that, if you're always waking up every morning with great confidence and you never have to have that reminded to you, you must be dead and in heaven. There is a sense in which the Scriptures tell us the normalcy of Christian life is, is that we are never as good as we think we are, in fact, we're far worse than we believe that we are. And the reality is, is that God is much greater and grander and more profound than we will ever fully understand and comprehend. Which means your whole life is to be one seeing where it is you fail to believe fully and then filling that gap with the glorious message that God is with you. That's what the Psalms often do for us, is they drive us to see the God of heaven is invading our reality, invading our unbelief, invading our slothfulness, invading our lack of trust, and replacing it not with despair, but with hope and confidence. And that's what this Psalm is seeking to do. With that in mind, it's no wonder that this was one of the psalms that Luther, throughout his travails, sang often. James Boyce tells us in some of his writings, as he was doing some research on Luther, that it was said in Luther's memoirs, and Melanchthon's actually the one that records it, Melanchthon said that Luther frequently, in the times of greatest distress, when opposition was most severe and profound towards him, that he would say, come Philip, let us sing together Psalm 46. Now I want us to think about how many of us live our lives. When we're at life's most difficult point, is it recorded of us now, and will it be recorded of us, that what was known of us is that we would say, 
comes to, let's sing together Psalm 46. See, there's something about people who begin to get in the warp and woof of their everyday life. This is who God is. And even when I don't believe it, I'm going to go sing and tell myself things which refute my wrong thinking and drive me towards right thinking. And that's why we read this. And we need to read it often. And we need to focus on it. This is what Luther said. We sing this psalm to the praise of God because God is with us and powerfully and miraculously preserves and defends His church and His Word against all fanatical spirits, against the gates of hell, against the implacable hatred of the devil, and against all the assaults of the world, the flesh, and sin. Now, this is what I want you to think about. If we really believe what Luther just said, that this psalm teaches us, I think in some ways that frees us up as Christians to pursue God and not be so consumed with what godless people are doing. Because it's not to say that we don't defend the faith. It's not to say that we don't stand firm. We don't just sit on the premises of the church. We stand on the promises of Scripture. It's not just that we do those things. But it's the fact that we become people who know that whether Gifford or Graff get elected, our God will not have changed. That somehow the kingdom of God will not fail if the Republicans lose Congress. In fact, lo and behold, there are times in America's history when people thought that when things went a certain direction, it was all going to be over and the country was going to go to hell in a handbag, that sometimes in those places, God has seen to be most big to the people of God. See, there's a sense in which for me personally, I think that in some ways, American Christians are so hardened and so prone to love the vehicles of this world to accomplish change that it is the mercy of God at times that He reminds us that it is not by earthly means that His kingdom prevails. Now I say that in some ways because if the prognosticators are right, there's going to be some changes in Washington. Some may be good, some may be bad. The reality is, is that how do God's people operate? How do we really operate in the world that doesn't always go, quote-unquote, the way we think it ought to go? We believe in an omniscient God who knows all things. We believe in an omnipotent God who is able to do all things. We believe in an omnipresent God who is always with us. And then we act accordingly. We vote or we don't vote accordingly. We do what we do because we know that God is with us. We never lose sight of that. And I think that's something that we have to be about. So here's the three things I want us to look at. Is This is a psalm of confidence. It could also be considered a psalm of confession. And so I have three things I want you to see that this psalm is confessing that I think we should make as our confession as well. The first thing I want you to see is a cosmic confession. The psalm draws us to consider the effects of cosmic disruption represented by nature. If we look here at these passages, especially in... 
verse 2 and 3, it says, Therefore we will not fear, though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. What we have here basically is a traumatic earthquake and a big, huge tsunami, if you want to put it in modern terms. That's what's going on there. There's a massive earthquake, and the resulting reality is that the water, a tsunami, basically comes in and is swallowing. Now think about what that looks like for us. We can relate to this in some ways. A tsunami hit the coast over in East Asia not that long ago and wiped out hundreds of thousands of people, either with their lives or with all their means of of economy and everything else. I mean, it was just massive destruction. So I want you to think about this. The psalmist is saying there are forces in this world which drive us to a place of going, what in the world is going on? But what we need to realize is, is that at times those forces need to be reckoned with in a different way. Look at how the psalmist then proceeds. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear. And I think if you get that first part of chapter 2, you get the heart, I believe, of what this psalm is about. It's why we do not fear. It's why we're not afraid. In other words, what the psalmist is saying, even if the whole universe implodes on itself, even if a big asteroid one day, someday, appears in in outer space heading straight for planet Earth, even if the sun burns out, even if the hole in the atmosphere gets really huge, we will not fear. Earthly realities do not bring us into fear. Some of you don't know this, but the other day we had a, it was I think two weeks ago at our evening gathering, a tremendous um, thunderstorm hit right over the church here. So much so that several of us couldn't even leave because it was lightning. Lightning was literally hitting all around the church. And, uh, and so we were standing out here and the Dugans, bless their heart, were sitting in their car and Susan backed up and tried to leave and backed up and tried to leave and backed up and tried to leave. And the rain was just torrential. Lightning was going crazy. And after it kind of subsided and it was just kind of sprinkling and everybody had left... I basically figured, well, you know, even with all that rain, you know, it hasn't had really time to hit down here in these washes. So I head down that hill right there, you know, driving about 35, 40 miles, 50, I don't know, whatever I was going down. I didn't, I didn't have my foot on the accelerator. I just was going down that hill. And all of a sudden, in a place, not in the big dip, which I would have been slow in, not even in the smaller dips down there where there are clear signs that say, do not enter, But my lights heading down there could not see, and I crashed into a huge wave of water and stalled out with Olivia sitting in the passenger seat and just kind of going, well, I don't know what I'm going to do. The amazing thing was at that moment I thought, well, I guess, Lord, if this is it, we're going to wash down this stream and we're just going to hang on for dear life. But this is the confidence that that I was thinking about. As we've been thinking about, we've been going through a, a variety of psalms on Sunday evening, of which many of them are looking back to the Red Sea, which God parted. This watery, deluge type of event. And what I basically thought about as I hit that water and stalled was, 
this is nothing like the Red Sea. We're going to be okay. Now, see, you might think that's that's small potatoes. What? You know, why did you even bother to tell us that story? The reason why I bothered to tell you that story is because I want you to see that there is something about getting into the warp and woof of Scripture, getting it, letting that soak into you, that when you come to places like that where there's every reason to go, I mean, look, folks, we all know what happens when you get into washes when the water is racing. You get washed away. People die every year in Tucson because they hit a wash that they didn't think was going to do what that wash did to me, and I didn't even see it. So the point is, is that what do we do when those travails happen? We have confidence in God. So that when we start to look behind some of those things and we realize that our enemy, the devil, is very real... Think about how Luther says it. If this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear, for God has willed His truth to triumph through us. See, there's a sense that when you come to the spiritual battles, when you come to everyday life, these things become very practical and helpful because we realize that if God is in charge of the cosmos, if this cosmic reality is under God's control, we confess that reality so that when we hit different circumstances, we're not undone. We're not overthrown. Even if we stall for a moment, what's in us ultimately prevails through us. And that is that greater is He that is in us than he that is in the world. Greater is He that is work through us than what the world can throw at us in all its forms and fashions of the cosmos. The reason why, then, we do not fear is because God is a warrior in our cause. When the psalmist says God is our refuge and strength, it actually gives us two ideas here. One is that God is our refuge. So, in other words, He's a fortress. He's a place that we are able to go and be safe in. But it's not just that. When it talks about Him having strength, it's talking about His omnipotent power, which is not necessarily so much of a defense, but it's an offense. It's not just that God protects us. If you think about the imagery of God as a a mother hen where you have the, the wings that overshadow you to protect you, there's also mighty talons and a big beak that are going to rip and peck those who would seek to do harm to those little chickens. See, there is an imagery of Scripture that we see there, that this notion that God is not only protecting us, but He is advancing His cause in our defense. I know that I have a federal prosecutor, so when I use this illustration, I have to go ahead and beg His forgiveness on the front end. But I want you to think about this. If we have a defense prosecutor, if we have a defender, a public defender or whoever, we hire a defense lawyer, what we don't want him just to do is to stand up and go, the guy's innocent. We want him to come up with a plausible cause in a way that defends us, that actually goes after what we're being accused of. Not just standing there going, he didn't do it, but no, not only did he not do it, but somebody else did, and I'm going to show you how it cannot possibly be him. See, they're actively, aggressively going after your cause. And so there's a sense in which God is being told to us that He is not only a refuge to find security in, 
but we have surety that He will not let us fail because He goes out in front of us. He's marching in front of us, clearing the way, parting the realities of sin and death, and knocking back the devil so that we will not ultimately be undone. The psalmist also in this passage addresses the attack of the nations upon God through attacking His people. Look over in verse 6 where it says, The nations rage, the kingdoms totter, He utters His voice, the earth melts. The, the idea here is this, that while the nations may rage, while the peoples of the earth who reject God may come up against the people of God, may even seek to turn their weapons at God, whether it be weapons of, of their ideas or literally weapons, the reality is, is that God who created all things by the breath of His Word is also able to undo it with His voice. See what it says there in verse 6. The nations rage, the kingdoms totter. He utters His voice. The earth melts. The earth in these psalms is not just merely to be seen, I think, just as, as, the, as planet earth. I think it's really an idea of the physical realm. There's nothing in the physical realm that can do you ill, ultimately. Doesn't Jesus express this when He says, don't fear man. What can man do to you? All he can do is kill your body. Fear God, who can kill both body and soul. Don't be undone by what you see around you. Therefore, what we see then is in the, the visible and the invisible cosmos, God reigns supreme. Here's the thing I think we should see out of this first confession. God's kingdom is never in jeopardy. Did you hear what I said? God's kingdom is never in jeopardy. That's why you can stand alone if you have to. Because you, if you are a true believer, God's kingdom is in you. And therefore, you cannot ever be ultimately in jeopardy. Now, notice how this gives us a different attitude as we think about living as Christians, as we think about being a church. We never worry ultimately about the kingdom of God being in jeopardy. Churches come and go. We know this. If you drive through Mississippi where I went to seminary, there are hundreds of little churches that are closing their doors every day. I think I read a statistic the other day that said 3,000 churches close in America every, day, every year. And if we allowed those statistics to drive us, what would we say? We'd become people, what are we going to do to save the church? Which is what we see some people doing. Maybe what we need to be doing is falling on our knees saying, God, save the church. Because we're never in jeopardy if God is at work in our midst. The second thing I want us to see then is a theophonic confession. You don't even have to write that down. Basically what I'm getting at here is there's a theophany that takes place here, and that's what's going on. I probably made up another word. It's becoming... I'm becoming kind of Kleinian in that way, huh? There, um, just making up words as I go along. But the point that I want you to see here is theophonic confession is this: that the imagery that the psalmist gives to comfort us is one that spans the scriptures from Genesis to Revelation. 
What happens in Genesis? God's Spirit hovers over. He, he shows forth His glory through the Spirit over the created order. Eden is created. And what flows out of Eden? A river with four... Made, this huge river flows out in four streams, if you will, out of Eden. Which means Eden must be on a mountaintop because water flows down. So what we see is these four rivers flowing out of Eden. And what imagery do we get when we get to Revelation chapter 22? Turn there with me. Revelation chapter 22, beginning there in verse 1 and just reading through verse 2. This is what it says. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and from the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each, each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. The imagery then is of this vast river flowing with various streams out of the city of God. Now the thing that's interesting about this psalm is there's no statement about Jerusalem or Zion, which leads, which causes confusion for a lot of commentators. It doesn't cause me that much confusion. Maybe it should, but it doesn't. Because what I think is being seen here is the city that's made without hands. What's being seen here and what really we're focusing on is not an a earthly locale, but a spiritual presence. It's the theophany of God. If God is in the midst, if God indwells, if God is there, then it doesn't matter where you are. See, the sense that it says there's a city, there's a city here in verse 4, there's a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. The point then becomes that God is in the midst of her and she shall not be moved. That's what we need to see. That's what we're being grabbed by is the fact that if God is present among you, in you, around you, then you cannot be moved. You cannot be undone. If the first thing is to bring us to a place of not believing that we're in jeopardy, the second place is to believe that our foundations are secure. What we see then here is a sort of promise of what we see in the New Testament. It is the reality of an incarnation and the reality of the Spirit's outpouring. See, it's a theophany. What is the Spirit of God? I mean, what is the river? Ultimately, we're told that that is the work of the Spirit. It's this, it's this flowing out from the throne of God, from the Spirit. How did that come to us? Because of the incarnation of Jesus Christ. See, this psalm, ultimately, if you're reading it with New Testament eyes, has to drive you to Christ. It has to drive you to the work of the Spirit because that's ultimately where the river is found. It's ultimately where we see the promise being held. The interesting thing I want us to see here, too, within this section of the Psalms, it says this in verse 5, God will help her when morning dawns. Now, for many of us, that might not immediately strike us as important as it would have for the psalmist, but 
you would not have gone to battle until the break of dawn, but at the break of dawn, the battle commenced. And so when he says, when the enemies have surrounded the city, if you will, what he's saying is, is that God will help her when the morning dawns. It's not to say that in the night you're on your own. Just keep hanging on till morning and, and God will get there. It's more of saying, no, when the enemy arises to go to battle, God is there. You need never fear. Even if you overslept, God was already in the trenches. And it's interesting that the phrase then becomes one for them that the Lord of hosts is with us. Again, host, for some of us, we know exactly what the host is, but let me remind us for those who might not. Host is the reality of armies. It's the host, the angelic host, the armies of God. What basically the psalmist is saying is the army of God is already out there. It reminds me of, I believe it's um, Elisha, who asked and prays that his servant's eyes would be seen, would be opened, because as these great armies have surrounded Elisha, his servant sees these armies and is greatly afraid and then his eyes are opened up and what does he see? He sees all these chariots, these angelic chariots around all these armies and he says, there are greater numbers with us than with them. See, we need to become people that really believe that. That God really is in our midst a victorious king. And His people's foundations are always sure that when dawn breaks, the battle will be won by the Lord. The final thing I want us to look at then is a prophetic confession. Let me say a couple things about Scripture. Many people spend a lot of time reading Scripture because they view it as a book that's always foretelling. It's foretelling the future. And I'm not saying that certainly Scripture has a foretelling aspect. This psalm itself is telling us about things that have not yet come into existence when it writes that ultimately He will be exalted among all the nations. We know that even in our own day that has not fully come to expression. But the real heart and soul of Scripture is not so much the foretelling it is as it is the foretelling. It's declaring to you the way it is. This is the truth. This is what you need to put your hope in. This is the reality that you need to come. So when we talk about things being prophetic, many times... Churches will say, well, we have a prophetic ministry. And what they mean by that is that they're telling you what's going to happen. Their focus is all on what will happen. But when I tell you that hopefully this church has a prophetic ministry, what I mean by that is that we proudly and boldly proclaim the truths of Scripture. And that's not just something... And the reason why I said church, I didn't say we, you have a pastor... I said we are a church because these are the things that each one of us needs to proudly proclaim and boldly proclaim in our lives and on our lips. So the idea here is, is that now God comes and declares, He foretells the realities of what will come and what, where hope should be placed. Because if you remember back again, the main point is the people are not to fear. We will not fear. Here's why. The Lord calls upon all creation to behold the mighty works of the Lord. Look at what He says there. He says, Come, 
Behold the works of the Lord, how He has brought desolations on the earth. Now I want you to think about that. I think in some cases, we don't really have a full view of who God really is. God is not just the God who redeems and saves. He's also the God who brings desolations and destruction. This is the God who told Jeremiah, Do not think that I am not behind this evil that has come upon you. You have rejected me. Don't think that this has come upon you and you somehow can slough it off as this is not of the Lord. The reality is, is that we need to remember that God is not trapped inside our paradigm. He's outside of it. And He does what is right and pleasing and good in His sight. And we have to become people that begin to look as we see this and the reality is the Lord says, Behold all my works. That just as surely as Christ's resurrection brought about a victory for His people, as His ascension declared His rule and reign for His people, just as surely as the nations were freed from underneath the bondage of Satan and the Gospel has been pouring forth into all the nations as a result, the reality is is that there are those who will not believe. The reality is that there is a part of this world that will not confess. Not in their lives. And that reality then becomes one of saying that when God saves, it also brings destruction. Think about the flood. The very waters that raised the ark up over the mountains so that it was not hit by the mountains. It raised up way over the mountaintop so that it was safe. Also destroyed the entire creation. So when God does redemptive things, we need to recognize that those redemptive things also mean the doom of others. Satan, sin, and death. We're defeated even as Christ brought life for His people. And so the Lord says, step back, behold Me, see Me for who I am. Deal with Me as the One who has revealed Himself to you in this way, both judgment and salvation, both Creator and Consummator. That's who I am. That's what I do. If we see that, then it draws us to have confidence both in the present and in the future. We will not fear, for God hath willed, like I've said before, His truth to triumph through us. No matter how things may look in the moment, the end is assured. Wars will cease. The weapons of war will be shattered. We need to do things about North Korea. We need to be concerned as a nation about Iran and other parts of the world where weapons of destruction can obviously bring great havoc. That's why God has formed governments to control and keep these kinds of things under control. But as Christians scattered throughout the world in North Korea and Iran and Iraq and other places, we need to remember that we're not trying to ultimately build kingdoms on this earth. We live in the various places that God has called us to. We inhabit it. We love it. We seek its betterment. We seek it to be a place where peace 
as much as is earthly possible prevails, but we ultimately realize that weapons and other things like that will not be done away with until the end. And I want us to recognize then that we have encouragement, whether it's bombs or temptations, to not be overwhelmed by them. Because ultimately, God is able to triumph in our midst. The Lord calls upon all creation to cease striving, to be still, to recognize the truth of God. He will be exalted, He says, among the nations. He will be exalted in the earth. And here's the reality. He will be exalted among the nations either because the nations have been brought in and they believe, or He will be exalted among them because they will have to bow the knee at the end whether they wanted to or not. Well, we need to see then both in all three of these, whether it's a cosmic confession, whether, whether it's a theophonic confession, or whether it's a prophetic confession, the real reality in conclusion is, is that God is with us. He's in our midst. He brings about a reality that means that we are enabled to live in a different way, even in the face of great horror. And I want you to turn with me then as we conclude to Philippians chapter 2. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians. And in light of Psalm 46, I want you to listen to these words. I want you to think about both first what they meant for Christ as He thinks about enduring this life and the cross. And then think about how we're called to follow Him. Listen to how Paul says this. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Think about this. If you're afraid, what do you do? You do whatever it takes to help you not be afraid anymore. You build bunkers. You buy lots of guns. You do all kinds of things because you want to feel safe and secure. You shove people away. See, look at what Paul's calling for these Philippian Christians to do. Have this mind which means you're unafraid. Your commitment in life is not to make sure that nobody else ever hurts me again. Which is oftentimes when we've been deeply wounded, our commitment. See, it's not just about how we're looking out there. It's how we're looking at in here. I will not fear, for God is with me. So he goes on to say this, let each of you look not only to his own interest in verse 4, but also to the interest of others. How do you do that if you're constantly afraid and worried about yourself? You can't. You don't. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. 
And then this is the final thing I want you to hear in verse 12 and 13. Therefore, my beloved, what's Paul's response to all this because of what Jesus has done? Just as you have always obeyed, so now not only is in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Why? Because if you don't, you're damnable? No. Because it is God who works in you both to will and to work for His pleasure. See, the reality is, the reason why we look at this psalm, the reason why we think about these things in our mind, the reason why we remember and behold the great victories of God, the reason why we remember that God is with us, is so that we will pursue with abandon His will and His ways because we know that He's there with us. So may God enable us even this day to remember His presence that we might go forth to do the great deeds which He has called us to. Amen.